Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. For the last two years, we've been journeying through Genesis as a community, delving into the origin stories and histories of our faith. In this series of Genesis, we step into the patriarchal families of Abraham and continue to see how both the promise of God is fulfilled, but also the brokenness of man. Ultimately, we see that even though we are the great promise breakers, he is the great promise keeper. We pray that this message is a blessing. Um, If you've not met before, my name's Alex, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here in this church. And I don't do it alone. I've got an incredible team alongside me, and it's just a privilege just to take a moment to step into God's Word together. Um, A few weeks ago, uh, Pete... Greg or Krieg, I always forget how to pronounce that, but he's the lead um, sort of guy for 24-7 Prayer International, and he travelled over to Asbury Theological Seminary where there's a real move of God happening at the moment. Uh, And he came back and sort of gave his like two cents on that experience, and uh, he said on one level, I want to call it revival because as the history's been told, there's this prayer moment that sort of turned in from like a college chapel service turned into this ongoing sort of prayer moment. And uh, it's just, uh, is it still going? Does anyone know? No, it's not going. All right. My illustration still applies. Don't worry. And it just had kept on going. And he comes back from that and people are saying, is this revival? Is this God coming in a whole new way? And he said, on one level, I'd love to be able to say that, but at the same time, I just want to call it normal Christianity, right? Normal Christianity, God just meeting with his people in intimate and and profound ways. And as the pastor of this church, just also want to label what God's doing in our midst. And I just label it as normal Christianity. But do you feel it? There's something that's happening in worship as we gather as his people. There's something happening just up on level one where our kids meet with bubs. There's something happening midweek when our youth group is growing and a whole host of things that are taking place in this church. And I just want to say what a joy it is just to participate in what God's doing together. So I'm going to pray. We're going to open up God's word and then we might see what God would say to us this afternoon. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you're here. And as a community, Lord, we just say that we're here as well. Lord, might we be like the men and women of the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, who, when you came speaking, they said, God, speak, for we are listening. Lord, what we're about this afternoon is not entertainment, it's not mental stimulation, it's about hearing a simple word from our Heavenly Father. And so, Father, come and speak, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. I want to begin with a question, and that question is simply this. When was the last time you felt vulnerable? I realized as I scripted that question that as I asked that, you could feel vulnerable because the preacher's asking you that question, right? Does anyone feel that in a way? But when was the last time you felt vulnerable? To feel vulnerable means to sort of be exposed, to sort of stick out like a sore thumb and wonder what people or others or friends or family will begin to think of you. And it raises a whole host of existential questions to feel vulnerable. You can feel vulnerable in a myriad of ways. One of the ways you can feel vulnerable is financially. I know millennials and Gen Z particularly feel financially vulnerable in this state of the world. Interest rates going up, inflation making things more expensive. My flat white went from $4 to $6 in a couple of years. Does anyone feel this with me? Financially vulnerable. 
you can feel emotionally vulnerable. You could feel so subject to the way in which your emotions make you feel that you don't know what to do with it. You're scared, you, you feel exposed. Some of us here, myself included, have felt relationally vulnerable at times. Maybe with a colleague, maybe with a family member, maybe with a spouse, and you wonder whether the thing you said last to them is gonna come back to bite you, you feel vulnerable. What do you do? And the deeper question is, what do you do with God when you feel vulnerable? One of my favorite, um, favorite stories is the story of a man named John Newton. Uh, born in the early 18th century, died later towards that end of the century, I guess you'd say. Not too long. Life expectancy wasn't big back then. But he was a, a wealthy man, a British guy, and his father was a captain and a slave trader, and they made their money off the back end of the sort of Atlantic slave trade of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. He took up his father's trade, became wealthy himself. But then one night, when he was captaining a ship called the Greyhound, bringing back slaves from Africa to go and sell them in Western Europe and England, they struck into a storm. At the time, he was asleep. 1748, ship called the Greyhound, asleep under the deck. And he felt physically vulnerable. He gets up, he goes outside, and he's penned this in his journal. And in the midst of crisis, physical vulnerability, he prays to God. Now, I don't know if you know this, but that guy, at the time, wasn't a Christian, had made his wealth off the back end of the transatlantic slave trade. He was the guy who ended up becoming a Christian and wrote the song we all know and love to sing, Amazing Grace. You might know the words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. In the face of vulnerability, in the face of crisis, he met with God did business with God and became a changed man. And as we step into the story of Jacob, finish his end of the story before we look at Joseph and finish out our Genesis series that we're walking through as a church right now, here's the question I wanna ask. When was the last time you wrestled with God? When was the last time you took the vulnerability of the place God's brought you to and didn't try and insulate yourself away from the pain or the like, particularities of the moment, but actually use it as an opportunity to engage with God on a deeper level. Because here's the big idea I want us to feel this afternoon. God brings each of us to moments in life where the only way through is to grapple with him. Does anyone feel that? Yeah. God brings us to moments in life where the only way through is to grapple, to wrestle, to be honest with him. And so I wanna ask this question, what can we learn from the story of Jacob? Not because he did it so well, but because God did something to him in the midst of his story. What can we learn for our lives today from this particular story? And I think there's four things. And you're like, Alex, usually there's three and you go over time. I'm aware, let's just see how we go. We might have to skip one and that's okay. And I'll just hand out my notes if anyone would like them. But these four things I think we learn. We learned one, about a better security, two, a new proximity, 
Three, a refined character, and four, a different identity. So number one, a better security. We're going to walk through verses 22 to 24. If you've got your Bibles, whip them out, we'll walk through. And my hope is that each of us walk away with a question, whether from each scene or something that God might speak particularly to us from the larger time we've got together. But verse 22, that night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob, verse 24, part A, Jacob was left alone. The thing you've got to know about the Jacob story is Jacob was really good at being self-sufficient and amassing for himself the security that he had to make him feel okay in the world. What do I mean? Well, I mean, his story starts back in chapter 25 where God has a destiny for him uh, when his mother, Rachel, is pregnant with him and he's got this destiny that he would be the person through whom God continues the storyline of Abraham. Now, the storyline of Abraham takes forward the answer to the problem, which is the Genesis 3 problem, the idea that all humanity now is separated from God. And so God goes, big picture story, God in the world, they're now cut off, now through Abraham and then through his son Isaac and then Jacob, God is going to restore the problem that Genesis 3 started to unfold. And in that space, in that moment, in this particular scene, God gives to Jacob the destiny that he would be the one through whom the nations would become blessed, the idea that God blesses us to bless others, we find in the story of Jacob. And so what Jacob does is he takes that announcement, that destiny, but through his own cunning and cleverness and skill set, tries to gain the blessing for himself away from the blessing and hand of God. And so he does that in a number of ways, but the key way he does it is through lying, through cheating, and stealing. We'll learn later, scene number four, that Jacob's name just means heel grabber or deceiver. And the way that Jacob makes his fortune in the world, amasses blessing for himself, is through lying, through cheating, and through stealing, through taking from others, story of him and his brother Esau, week one we looked at. Taking from family members, the story of him and Laban when he moves north and spends 20 years up in a place called Haran, steals sheep, steals livestock, all those kinds of things. And then eventually, he steals relationships. And he gets, we get to a point in his story where we see he's incredibly self-sufficient, he's amassed for himself this great sense of security, and he's awaiting his future destiny. And then God calls him at the start of this chapter, I'll get that later, at the start of this chapter, and takes him on a journey. Now at this point, verse 22 to 24, it's not clear in the text, but it is the case that Jacob's about 97 years old. So plenty of life left in him, you know what I'm saying? 97 years old, he spent 20 years in the north in a place of obscurity, away from the, the eye of his brother, who had been trying to kill him, essentially, the whole way through the story. And then on top of that, his, originally, his original family that's further south in a place called Beersheba. Now, you don't have to remember this. There'll be no test on these name places. Um, but God calls him. And so in obedience, this turn of the narrative, he starts outwalking his faith in obedience to God. And as he gets closer and closer, he becomes more and more vulnerable. What do I mean? Well, verse 24 says that he sends over, he's first sends over his possessions he next sends over his family, and then he's standing there all by himself. And so Jacob surrenders three things before he meets with God by, on his lonesome. He surrenders his place of comfort and obscurity up in Haran. He surrenders his possessions, the thing that he's amassed for himself that give him the sense of worth and value and security and safety. He surrenders them, sends them over the river. Well, it's actually a ford. We'll get into that soon. 
And then last but not least, he sends over his people. Place, possessions, people. And so here you've got a man whose entire worth and security and safety and sense of lack of vulnerability is completely surrendered before God. And he's alone in the river awaiting the next step. There's a scholar named John Walton, and he says it like this, commenting on the Jacob story. He says, sometimes God must take away the things that we've gained ourselves in order to give us what he has to give. What could that mean? Let me just get this little guy here. Jacob's brought to a place where the means by which he felt security in the world, he surrenders before God, now he's on his lonesome. And God would challenge him and say, actually, the way by which you found security in this world are through these things. Now you no longer have them. You're naked before me. You're vulnerable. You're exposed. And in God bringing Jacob to this place, he's bringing Jacob to a place where perhaps in laying these things down, he can find himself a new security. Do you see what I'm saying here? Do you see what Jacob might have experienced? So here's my question. Where do you get your security? Where do you find your safety? Where do you get your sense of identity and value and worth? And how do you know what that thing is? Someone said to me, Alex, you know the place in which you find your security by how you react when you're at risk of losing it. You know what I mean? So why don't we just take a moment? Each of us have something. Maybe recently you bought a house and you're just like, finally I've made it. Thank God I could get into the market. And then interest rates go up, and you're like, oh my goodness. I thought we planned for this. What if we didn't? Now, there's two ways to react to that. One is to say, oh, we should budget well, and everything might be okay. The other is to say, everything's going to be terrible. I'm going to lose my house, and this is the worst thing that could possibly happen, and I am stuffed. You catastrophize. The latter kind of reaction is the anxiety that the Christian need not feel. Right? Why? Because we've got a better security. Think about it. What did Jacob come face to face with? His whole life, he'd been amassing possessions for himself, getting security for himself, and he'd placed those things at the center of his life. Jacob was someone who, through deceit, chased blessing. And then God in that place becomes the thing on the periphery. Blessing at the center, God on the outside. Possessions in the middle, God is therefore a stepping stone by which I achieve things for myself, amass things for myself, get security for myself. God's just a little sort of pawn on my chessboard I call life. And God brings him to a place where all those things are pushed to the periphery and all he's got left is God right there in the middle. It's a new security. You get a new security when you place God at the center of your life. So here's the question. What's at the center of your life this afternoon? For Jacob, it was his possessions and it was his cunning and self-sufficiency to achieve that security for himself. What is it for you? Maybe you bought a house recently. Maybe it's some kind of relationship. All of us have something that we put at the center of our lives and push God to the outside so he becomes a stepping stone and we become anxious. What would it look like for you to put God at the center, to him, for him to be your new security? Hmm. Second, a new proximity. Let me read verse 24 and 26 says this, Jacob was left alone, and a man 
or another way to translate that would be an individual, just a general term, a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. The man said, let me go for it is daybreak, but Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So one of the unidentified things about this passage so far is that we don't know who the man is. But it becomes clear later, as Jacob reflects on his encounter, that this man is some kind of divine being. He uses the general term Elohim. And we know that in the Old Testament, if you want to refer to God in particular, we use the word Yahweh, which is translated the Lord. So this is some general divine being. A lot of scholars think that it's an angel. But as an angel, this is a sort of intellectual housekeeping here, right? As an angel, you become an emissary for Yahweh, for God. And so in this sense, I'm going to say that this is Jacob's wrestle with God. But if there's any intellectual scholars in the room who are like, is it really God or is it an angel? I'm just like, hey, let's just put that to bed. This is an emissary on God's behalf. Jacob's wrestling with God. We cool with that? Intellectual housekeeping, tick it off. Let's move straight through. Think about what this could mean for our lives. So here's my question. Why doesn't God just beat him? Does anyone have that question? You read this text? It's really stumbling. It's a bit of a tension. There's this narrative that unfolds and meets this stranger who seems to like reduce his own sense of physical strength. But then you get to the back end of the story and just another way to translate the Hebrew here would be just with a kiss. Just knocked out his tendon. So you've got this weird scene within which there's this being who seems divine, who limits his strength, but at the same time demonstrates his strength and And so some people will say, maybe Jacob's just having a physical wrestle with this guy. Maybe that's all it is. I think it's deeper. I think that God, in the face of this angel divine being, is presenting himself to Jacob, limiting his strength, but engaging his strength at the same time. Having a a kind of wrestle with Jacob that's not purely physical, but is physical in as much as it allows Jacob to tap into the spiritual reason that God met him there in the first place. You see what I'm saying? Right? Like, what else would make sense? What else would make sense of the fact that this guy can come along? And here's, here's the other imagery you've got. Um, it says in verse 26 that they, um, sorry, verse 24, that they're just by the fords, or 23, just by the fords. Now, I looked this up, because I thought a, a, f- a ford, any, like, northern Europeans in the room? I thought a ford was, like, a, a fjord. So if you've been to New Zealand, been to Milford Sound, there's these big, sort of, cavernous walls, and there's this water that ships sort of, like, sort of move into, and it's not a fjord, it's a ford. And a ford is what I like to call, in outback Australian terms, a creek. It's just a creek. And so here you've got Jacob by himself in a creek, you know, Kedron Brook, no less, and and God comes along, and think about the imagery. I used to picture these guys in a desert. Desert's clean, sand is annoying, but you don't have it like stain your pants, you know what I mean? But they're in a creek. There'd be mud, there'd be water, like they could look like two pigs that have just gone at it in their style, you know what I mean? And so here's my, my question isn't why didn't God, isn't just why didn't God beat him? My question is like, what? Here you've got a picture of this divine being getting muddy. And I think this teaches us something. Here's the big idea from this scene. I think it shows us that God wrestles with his people, not to show his power, but to show his proximity. Now just pause there for a moment. What kind of God would do that? God's not out to win. 
God's not out to beat. He will prevail. That's not his aim. Something deeper going on. And the deeper thing is that he wants to be proximate with people that need it. He wants to come close. It's a new kind of proximity. So what could this mean for us? Well, I think it means that we get to be honest with our wrestle. When I was growing up, actually, let me start even bigger picture. I think you can tell a lot about people by the TV shows they grew up watching, you know what I mean? So why don't we just do a bit of a sort of people survey? I'd love to hear, what are the sort of TV shows you grew up watching? I'll go first, mine was The Simpsons, loved it. It informs so much about my picture of God that God had to reconstruct for me. That's fine. Working on it, not a problem. Some favourite things. Just shut your hand right up and I'll just call on you. Let's do this. Oh, eager beaver. I heard friends. That's great. All about it. Yep, down the front. Bold and the Beautiful. Bold and the Beautiful. Anyone resonate with Bold and the Beautiful? Yep, Richard. Yep. Goodies and bunkies. Does anyone else feel goodies and bunky? Yep, a couple of hands in the room. Don't be shy, not a problem. Does anyone remember Wheel of Fortune? Yeah. yeah, now we're talking, now we're talking. Bewitched? The Nanny? Judge Judy? Oh, take me there. Yeah, good, good. Oh. So every Saturday, right, every Saturday I'd sit on the couch, I'd recline, and we had Foxtel growing up. I know, I know, big deal, huge fact. We had Foxtel, I'd turn on Fox 8, for the first few hours of the morning, it'd be The Simpsons. Loved it. And then at 11 a.m. every Saturday morning, WWE came on. Wrestling. And I loved it. I loved it because I remember thinking, these guys are huge, they're really angry at one another, but they're really going to go at it. But then after watching it for a few years, I remember someone came to me and said, you know it's all fake, right? And I was like, no, it's not. What are you talking about? John Cena, you can't see, you know what I mean? Like, he, you have no idea. And when I found out it was fake, I remember thinking, oh, it sort of devalues it a bit. Like, what's the point? And when it's fake, you sort of ask, like, why bother? And I'd ask the same question of, Christians who sort of would say, I engage maybe a fake wrestle with God. I think we can wrestle with God in a fake way as Christians. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, there's this classic phrase you would have learned to say if you grew up in a more charismatic church. No heat, I'm charismatic myself in some ways and learning to be so even more, but here's the thing. You go through pain and suffering, turn up at small group, and then one person would say, God's good, and in response you'd say, all the time. Or one of the classics I hear, particularly chatting with, um, not my small group, but other pastors, not necessarily in Brisbane, but some are in Brisbane, and you know, I ask them, hey, how's it going? How's the year started? And they're like, oh, it's, you know, big start to the year. God's good, though. I'm just like, bro, breathe a bit. It's okay. Like. And there's this thing you can do as a Christian where life might be hard, things might be tough, and you've got, a, you've got this sense that maybe I, I can't grieve it. Maybe I can't be honest about it. And what you do is you short circuit the wrestle. And the whole time God's there, he's proximate, he's close, and he's saying, I want to journey with you through it. I think God's closeness gives us license to be honest. There's a big tradition of this in the Bible, huge tradition. A few years ago, not a few years ago, last year there was a scholar, Abra not Abraham, gosh, 
Richard Middleton, and he wrote a book called Abraham's Silence. Incredible scholar, deep, deep work, and he looked at all the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, and Jeremiah, and he noted this sort of tradition in the Old Testament called lament. And he said, what we'd expect of this God who's big and other and transcendent is this sense in which we need to be really polite with him. You know what I mean? But then he goes through the Psalms, like Psalm 22, which says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or the story of Job, where Job is just listing out all of his problems to God, being like, this is where I'm at, this sucks, what are you gonna do about it? And what God doesn't do is smite. What God doesn't do is respond in anger. What God does is come close and listen. And Richard Middleton picks up on this sort of theme and he says actually what we think, what we see that God wants is rigorous, honest dialogue partners. Now check this out. How might that change your prayer life? Right now, you're going through something. All of us here. Right now, there's something in your life that's not the way you want it to be. This is true of me. Life's been hard this year. Life's hard in most years. How might your prayer life change if you heard that God wants you to be honest more than he wants you to be fake, that God would choose any single day of the week an honest wrestle over a fake faith, right? That's what God would choose. That's what he wants. He wants rigorous dialogue partners, people that are honest with who they are and with who they're not. Why? Because he wants the journey close, so close that he'd get muddy, so close that he would wrestle, so close that you wouldn't find yourself alone. So we've got number one, a better security. Number two, a new proximity. Number three, let's go there, a refined character. Verse, uh, chapter 31, verse three, uh, we need to go back. So join me there. Um, this is the point. Jacob is up in Haran, 97 years old, and God says to him, Flee Haran. And in doing so, reminds Jacob of the call that in chapter 25 he gave him. Remember that call. You will be a blessing to the nations. You will have a number of kin. Through you, I will outwork my promise to restore the world that was broken in Genesis 3. God reminds him in verse 3 of chapter 31 of his call. But then God stops him along the way. You had those moments in life? I don't know if you know this, there's a few times in the Old Testament where God's got an incredible call for an individual and then stops him along the way. Happened to Moses, happened to Abraham, and it's happening to Jacob. And the big question it raises, as Jacob is wrestled with by this angel, this emissary, and therefore, by extension, by, with God himself, the big question it raises is like, God, why are you contradicting yourself? Like, why would you call someone and then stop them along the way? I did a bit of digging into this, and it's actually the case that God's got these huge callings for individuals, and each person that he stops along the way, it's not so much a contradiction in who God is and his call on their life. It's actually God doing something by which to work out the contradiction in the individual. Or in other words, let me put it the way that I've titled it, he wants to refine their character. God calls Jacob, huge destiny, Huge potential, incredible calling. And God sees that on the way we have a deceiver, we have a liar, we have a cheater, we have a stealer. And so what does God do? Well, God does not say, 
They've got such a great calling, I'm going to let them outwork it at the expense of their character. God comes along, and at pain to himself, proximity with the person, God comes along and stops them in their tracks so they, God might work out something so he can work in something else, which is the new identity we'll talk about in a moment. But here's the takeaway. God does not sacrifice character on the altar of calling. He doesn't do that. A few years ago, you'll know, I was working for an organization, the founder of which, it turned out, uh, had been quite promiscuous. Now, the way that this man was introduced when I first started on the team was he was a family man, a man of integrity, a man of incredible character. And I never got close enough to know the guy, and so I wouldn't be able to say, you know, right or wrong as to which, but he had this huge calling. And through his ministry, people genuinely came to meet Jesus, and I think that's authentic and good. But he was a man, and we need to be gracious to him, but he was a man whose ability to talk about God far outpaced his apprenticeship after Jesus. So he could say really wonderful things from a pulpit, but behind closed doors was living this double life. And he was a man, I'd be, I think I'd be fine in saying, who sacrificed calling on the, on the altar of character, on the altar of calling. And when you do that, not only do you miss out, but actually forces a whole host of people that were impacted by your calling to question the authenticity of it in the first place. And so we think as Christians, man, maybe, it, you know, maybe you feel called to ministry or maybe you feel called to a certain thing in your life and you think, all right, there's this thing in my life that I'm just working on, but I'm just gonna, like, I'll get to it one day. You know what I mean? It might be a vice, it might be a habit, it might be, dare I say, a sin. And you're like, hey, I'll just get to it one day. It's going to be okay because I've got to go and do this particular thing that God's called me to do. And if you've been in any Christian leadership, you will have felt this. Like, it's a thing. Like, for me, it's anxiety. And it's not quite a sin. It's more of a habit. It's really annoying and it gets in the way. And... But if I don't deal with it, it could really hinder, not my calling, but the people amongst whom God's called me to live out this thing we call the shared life gospel. And, and what God doesn't do is ever say, yeah, that's cool. And so here's my question for us as we walk through this third and second last scene is, what are you doing to cultivate character at the moment? And what invitations is God giving you to work on your character? Um, if we go two slides ahead, I'd like to put it like this. I think there's some people here who um, actually have a call to ministry. And God would do incredible things through you. Do you know his first call is for you to grow in your character? What a wonderful invitation from a good God. Last scene, a different identity. As I step into this, I'd love to invite the band just to join me and we'll finish some of our time together. Verses 28, 27 to 28 say this. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Now, there's one other time in the story of Jacob that someone asked him his name. And that time was in the first sermon we walked through in this Genesis series, and it was when Jacob sat before his father, Isaac, 
And Isaac asked him, what is your name? And does anyone remember his response? Esau. He lied. Told a fib, porky pie. But because of that, he got blessing. Cheated someone out of it. And ever since he'd been on the run. There's another time, Laban, his father-in-law, not father-in-law, relative, uncle, basically. And he says, what is your name? And Jacob doesn't give him an answer, or not an honest answer. Doesn't say Jacob. And then you've got this story that unfolds between chapter 25 and chapter 32 of a man who won't acknowledge his name, but whose name, as it's translated, means heel grabber. You'll see it on the screen behind me. Heel grabber, deceiver, stealer. And this guy has just come face to face with God, as he would say later in one of the other verses. And this guy asked him his name. And finally, painful as it might be, he says, yeah, I have been a heel grabber. My name's Jacob. It's who I am. It's what I've done. And then God, through the angel, just says, I'm going to give you a new name. And the new name is Struggles with God. And in this moment, you see the power of a name to change an identity and change a destiny. Because one of the other things that are going on in the background of this passage is this is a way by which Israel, the nation, gets to remember how they got their name, their patriarchal father, their forefather, Israel. And in a moment, God changes the name that describes all that was wrong with this man and gives him a new identity that charts out a whole new destiny. And I just want to finish by saying that could be possible and true for each one of us. That could be possible and true for each one of us. See, there's power in a name, a lot of power in a name. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of studies that have been done over the years on the way in which names have power to shape people's experience of themselves and others' expectations of them. I'll give you an example. In the 1940s, one of the ways by which the Nazi regime referred to the Jews was as rats. Or in the late 20th century, one of the ways by which the Rwandans, uh, the Tutsis, were referred to was as cockroaches. Or in the early pioneering of the early American settlements, the way by which they referred to slaves was as subhuman. And the names given to each individual, it didn't just change the way that the community expected things of them, it changed their experience from within of who they were. Because there's power in a name. It changes identity, and it charts destiny. And here is God, through the angel, in a moment, giving a new name to Jacob. And that name, we thought of it when we started as more of an indictment. Oh, they're gonna wrestle with God because God wants to show his strength. It's not an indictment, it's an invitation. They're gonna wrestle with God because God wants to get into the mud of our lives. God wants to get weak and make himself available to us in our lives. He wants to, in other words, give us a better security, a new proximity. Can't remember the third one. And he wants to give us a new identity. The name you accept for yourself change everything about you. And here's the invitation for someone who knows Jesus. 
that you, by grace, through faith, can be called a child of God. I wanna talk about that for one more minute. But while I do, can I invite us to stand? if each of us could close our eyes. And I've covered a lot this afternoon. There's two things I think God might want to have us entertain for response. And one of them is just there's people in the room that don't know God and don't know that they can be called a child of God. So I want to make an invitation for those of us in the room that you hear that you can be saved by grace through faith. You can be given a new name. And that name is not the worst you've done or the, the darkest parts of your past, but actually it's, it's child of God, beloved, chosen, redeemed, set free, washed clean, child of God. And so if you would like to receive that name, step into relationship with God, be called afresh by Him, then I just want to invite you, perhaps for the first time, just to raise your hand where you are. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to leave this space open just for a moment. One of the things that Jacob did in calling himself Jacob was he said, this is who I was, this is all that I'm not, and all that's wrong with me. And God didn't give him a beating or a lecture. He just said, I've got a new name for you. Do you want that new name this afternoon? If that's you, just raise your hand. Wonderful, thank you, I see that. Beautiful, two people responding. And right now we're gonna receive that name and we do it just by starting a conversation with God, saying, God, sorry for who I've been. Thank you for what you offer me. Please come into my life. And so why don't we do that together? We're gonna pray as a church, we're gonna repeat after me, and we're gonna encourage our brothers that have put up their hand to receive this. So let's pray. God, sorry for how I've lived. Thank you that you offer me a new name and a new identity. I receive my identity as a child of God. Thank you that you're my father. Help me become more like your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And just, why don't we just keep our eyes closed. If you raise your hand, um, we'd love to give you a Bible, and so just um, don't leave this service without chatting with our host team or with myself, and we'd love to give you a Bible. There's others of us in the room. I wasn't going to do this, but I just think it'd be really helpful. We did it the other week, so I run the risk of recycling it too much, but I just think there's a calling on your life. But there's things that step in the way of that calling, not external, but internal and there's some repentance you need to do. We need to do. And so this is not so much about the calling on your life, but the character God wants to build into your life. And I just want to give each of us an opportunity just to say, God, I'm sorry. I confess my sin. Lord, I take seriously that habit, and I commit to outworking it with your presence as I walk forward. And so if you just have something you just want to be honest in community about, you don't need to say it out loud, you don't need to tell others what it is, it's just between you and God. 
that you want to have a moment of repentance and confession just quietly with him, I just want to invite you to raise your hand. Wonderful, thank you. Yeah, let's keep them up nice and high. Everyone's eyes are closed. Wonderful. Hands going up. Helpful. Wonderful. And I would just say, raising your hand, you're not showing me, you're showing the Lord. You're just saying, God, I just confess there's something in my life I haven't taken seriously. There might be others in the room just going to leave this space open. Do you want to raise your hand? Leave that open just for another moment or so. And if you just feel what I would call the conviction of the Holy Spirit, just say, God, thank you. Thank you. I confess my sin. So whatever it is in your heart, maybe you look back over your week and you just want to say, God, I'm sorry for that. So just why don't you go and do that right now? Just take a moment together. And just in this posture, let me pray and we'll worship, but first you just need to hear what John in his first letter would say to the believers. When you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. And so in the same way, by grace, you've received an identity as a child of God right now. Be washed clean as a child of God and step back into the calling he's got for you. Let me pray and we'll worship. Father, thank you that we get to be called children of God, that you're here, you're ministering to us, and that, Father, as you bring us under conviction, as we confess who we are and who we're not to you, you are so faithful. You're so just. And as through the psalmist, you would say, as far as the east is from the west, so I have removed their transgressions from them. And so, Lord, we just walk into that freedom right now. Father, I pray as we lean into worship, would you just release your freedom, release your spirit, release your power. Would we experience something of you, Lord, in the wrestle of our lives that we otherwise wouldn't experience in this moment? We just ask, Holy Spirit, come. Come and have your way. As we sing about you, sing with you, sing to you, make us yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let's, um, let's worship together. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.